Today on Reparations in Action. Right now, in wills and, and different kinds of documents ready to pass down wealth to the next generation, there is $70 trillion of generational wealth that is going to be experienced by the next generation of white people. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Uhuru, you're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, The White Lies Shattered series. My name is Jamie Simpson. White Lies Shattered is a program of Reparations in Action, exposing the insidious lies that we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast. Today, we are discussing the U.S. banning of the importation of African people in 1808 under Thomas Jefferson and that it was somehow progress for African people. We are exposing the fact that the so-called domestic trade of enslaved African people in the U.S. was unmitigated colonial violence. With us today is Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of the book Overturning the Culture of Violence. Also with us today, Jesse Neville, the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Uhuru and welcome back, Penny Hess. Uhuru, Uhuru Jamie, Uhuru Jesse. It's so great to be back on White Lives Shattered. We welcome all our listeners who are following us on Podbean or wherever they get their podcasts for this really important series that we've been working on. And as Jamie said, today we're going to talk about what some people call the second slave trade or the domestic slave trade and what it really was about. And as always, before I would begin, I want to salute Chairman Omalia Shetela, the leader of the African People's Socialist Party and the leader of the worldwide movement fighting against the colonialism that dominates the lives of African people wherever they have been forcibly dispersed around the world and fighting for the liberation of Africa and African people everywhere. Chairman Omali Shetela and the African People's Socialist Party formed the African People's Solidarity Committee, which I have the honor of being the chair of under the leadership of the party. And it is the organization of white people fighting for reparations to African people, again, under the party's direct leadership inside of the white population. So this is how we have been able to gain the understandings that we have that lets us begin to see the world through the eyes of the African working class, through the colonized of the earth, basically to turn history right side up. And this is something that we're so excited to share with you. We think that all white people have a responsibility and also a sense of, of redemption in a certain kind of way to begin to look at history as it really is, the true history, as history really took place and is experienced by African people and the majority of humanity rather than through the lens of the colonial narrative 
which is the narrative that upholds this capitalist white power system that we live in. And the beginning to see, see the world through the eyes of the African working class is something that leads us to a stand of reparations, that we have to get active to be able to, to make our self-criticism to African people and take a stand in solidarity with the right and ultimate um, destiny of African people to liberate themselves and all their land and their resources. So today we want to talk about something that many people may not even be aware of, that, that slave ships or ships that went to Africa from the U.S., um, you know, captained by, by white people, really the ruling class of the United States at that time, um, that kidnapped and trafficked African people from the continent of Africa to the United States was legally banned in the U.S. in the year 1808 when a named act prohibiting the importation of African people for sale was enacted by the U.S. federal government. In reality, U.S.-owned ships continued to actually kidnap and traffic African people to the U.S. as so-called, quote, contraband up into the Civil War. And I just make that point that it didn't end the, um, the kidnapping of African people totally. It was still happening. And there's recently, um, not too long ago, a book was published called Barracoon, which shows this, for example. And the book was written in 1927 by Zora Neale Hurston, but again was just published in the last few years. But this book is based on interviews with an African man who was, in the 1920s, a survival of the colonial chattel slavery system. And his name, his name that he was given by the slave master was Kujo Lewis. His African name was Oluwale Kosola. And he had been kidnapped from West Africa as a very young person and forcibly uh, trafficked to Alabama in about 1860, shortly before the onset of the Civil War. So, um, in fact, his progeny, his heirs, still live on on the land that he fought to, to gain for African people, a little piece of land, out called, which is today called Africatown, outside of Mobile, Alabama. But... Um, but the U.S. government did not end the kidnapping of African people from their homeland based on any moral reasons. And by the way, it was Thomas Jefferson who, um, under whose presidency this, this uh, act was enacted, this law was enacted. And the reason why was it was becoming far more lucrative for the U.S. and European powers basically to directly colonize and enslave African people on their own land. And, you know, by the beginning of the 1800s, the, uh, the European powers were starting to spread out in Africa and to, to basically force Africans on the continent of Africa to be enslaved, to work until their deaths. Massive genocide was carried out in places like Congo and, and um, basically Kenya and every, every part of Africa. This was burgeoning this this direct colonial system enslaving people african people on their own land was burgeoning in the early 19th century and the law prohibiting 
<clears throat> the importation of African people was um, promoted by then President Thomas Jefferson in 1806. And Jefferson was making his fortune from breeding, quote, and selling African children from his more than 300 African human beings that he owned. Jefferson was also using the enslaved labor of young African children in his nail factory. And we did discuss this in an earlier chapter, one of the first series um, episodes of this series. Yeah, that's that's right, uh, Penny. In fact, I think it was called um, The Lie That the American Revolution Was a, a Fight uh, for Liberty Against Tyranny. Um, so if you right. want to check out that episode of The White Lies Shattered a series for more about Thomas Jefferson's hypocrisy and you know depraved mm-hmm. colonial violence but you can also read more about Jefferson's nail factory and child labor in a 2012 article in the Smithsonian Magazine online called The Dark Side of Thomas Jefferson. Yes, yes, thank you for for raising that and um And of course, Jefferson was also raping his enslaved African child, 13-year-old Sally Hemings, who over the years, along with her children, was forced to live in a windowless little room next to Jefferson's bedroom. Um, And something that has been recently excavated at Monticello in only 2017. There's articles, you can Google that as well. You can see the um, tiny little horrible room that she was forced to to live in. Um, so despite plenty of contraband African people being trafficked to the U.S., their labor talents and skills were still being stolen through what after 1808 was the breeding and grooming of African people and what we call the domestic slave trade. At the same time that the importation of African people from Africa was being restricted or eliminated, the United States was undergoing a rapid expansion of cotton, sugarcane, and rice production in the Deep South and the West. Invention of the cotton gin, which was, of course, by African people, enabled the profitable cultivation of short staple cotton, which could be produced more widely than other types. This led to the economic preeminence of cotton throughout the Deep South. Enslaved African people were treated as a commodity, as we know, by owners and traders alike, and were regarded as the crucial labor for the production of lucrative cash crops that fed the triangle trade, meaning going to um, sending the cotton to, um, to Britain and to Europe and to other places around the world. This was the, the beginnings of, of the world trade. This is, as the chairman said, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Chairman O'Malley Shatella has told us that it was this assault on Africa and the theft of African labor, uh, talents, brilliance, la- you know, brilliance and land that is um, the that gave birth to the capitalist system. So cotton was a world commodity that fed the textile mills and garment industry in the northern U.S. as well as in Britain and all of Europe. In fact, Marx's Karl Marx's friend, radical theoretician Friedrich Engels, financially supported Marx from wealth from Engels' father's textile mills based on cotton grown and harvested by the labor of enslaved African people in the Caribbean. So 
before 1808, the current Wall Street stock market in New York City was created especially at Tontine's Coffee House. It's Tontine's Coffee House, which was on the corner of Wall Street, right at the East River, where the ships bearing African human beings docked as they came into the city and the, the captains came into the cafe and regist began registering their human cargo for sale there. And so we can see that African people were the first commodities of Wall Street. But after 1808, cotton then, because African people were no longer legally being brought into New York City or, or any other place in the U.S., cotton became the primary commodity of the U.S. stock market. And that's when Lehman Brothers, which was in existence just until the 2009 stock market crash, uh, started out as a cotton broker completely dependent on the production of cotton forced, um, you know, forcibly produced by African people. Thank you, Chairwoman Penny, um, for bringing this to light. And I think this is really, really important just to show the whole history and, and you know, the fact that uh, whether it was enslaved African human beings or cotton, that Wall Street and capitalism has always been built on the enslavement and oppression of African people. And another book that we want to recommend to our listeners to get a more uh, up-close view of what we're talking about from the perspective of African people is the book 12 Years a Slave, which describes uh, from the point of view of a man, an African man named Solomon Northrup who had been enslaved. Mm -hmm. uh, it describes how African people were forced to pick ever greater amounts of cotton each day and were brood, uh, beaten viciously and brutally daily on the plantations if they failed to meet the cruel and inhuman quota set for them by the white colonizers. Yeah, I mean, it is so brutal. It's so vicious. And one of the things that I do want to be able to cover and I have one little one today, are some of the testimonies that were recorded by African people who had been enslaved uh, over the years, you know, when they were still alive, part of the oral history of the conditions that they faced. But so breeding and holding of African people in these so-called slave pens and breeding pens became the norm. I'm from near Louisville, Kentucky, where there is a plaque down you know, downtown, not far from the river, that talks about, quote, garrison slave pens in Louisville, which had been at that site. And African men and women were trapped in tiny pens, um, that, which there were rows of them. And you can, you can Google that. You can look under Google Images and you can see rows, photographs of the rows of, of the pens where African people were, were forced into at any given site, wherever they were, and they were forced to basically breed infants to be sold, which they couldn't even control the life of. A woman, first of all, in this hideous situation, um, forced by colonial slavery, then her the product of her very womb is not hers. Or, or the man's. This belongs to the slave master. And of course, as is always mentioned in every book or accounting of this, this was on top of the constant rape of African women, enslaved African women by white slave owners 
and their sons and their friends, you know, and, and often very, very brutal and violent, um, you know, um, treatment by the, uh, the wives, the, the white women. And we have talked to some about that as well. So the, um, the brutal breeding of African people was more concentrated in the old South, further North, uh, along the Southern coastline. But in the 1880s, again, these massive plantations or agribusiness really were being, um, were, were springing up by the white colonizers in Mississippi and Louisiana further South. And, and African women were often forced to breed and to um, still meet their set quotas for picking cotton throughout their entire pregnancy, even on the days they delivered their babies. They worked. And I mean, we just have to really think about that and, and just, uh, you know, acknowledge what this colonial system really means. There is a, a book out that has, has shed a lot of light on this called The American Slave Coast. And it's a book that tells the horrific story of how the business of the enslavement of African people in the U.S. made the reproductive labor of, quote, breeding women essential to the expansion of the U.S. economy. The book shows how the children of the enslaved and their children's children were human savings accounts that were the basis of money and credit on Wall Street. In fact, by the time of the Civil War, as Walter Johnson wrote in an article that appeared in the New York Times several years ago called King Cotton's Long Shadow, as he put it, quote, it is not simply that the labor of enslaved people underwrote 19th century capitalism. Enslaved people were the capital, four million people worth at least $3 billion in 1860, which was more than all the capital invested in railroads and factories in the United States combined. Seen in this light, the conventional distinction between slavery and capitalism fades into meaninglessness. And, you know, this is, this is an understanding that Chairman O'Malley Chatella has absolutely forced onto the consciousness of the world, of the white world, the colonial narrative, that capitalism was born through the assault on African people, turning African people into commodities for sale and, um, and you know, being kidnapped from Africa and forced to labor in this hemisphere. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, Chairman Omali Shatella has been writing about this and exposing this for decades, you know, uh, in developing the whole theory of African internationalism. And we wanted to uh, bring into this discussion a particular statement or quotation from um, a really profound writing by Chairman Omali Shatella, uh, originally published in The Theory of African Internationalism, a chapter from the book an uneasy equilibrium, uh, the African revolution versus parasitic capitalism. And then it was republished uh, as a chapter in the chairman's latest book, Vanguard, The Advanced Attachment of the African Revolution. And uh, I wanted to just read this, uh, this excerpt and then, um, you know, open this up for discussion. So the chairman writes that, quote, our party and movement were forced to conclude that all humans, including Europeans, are trapped by an absolute necessity 
to secure and develop the means of subsistence. In other words, the primary motivating factor in human society is the production and reproduction of life. Without life, all other questions, religion, culture, genetics, etc., are moot, meaningless. Indeed, culture is a byproduct of the process of producing and reproducing life. However, the process of Africans producing and reproducing life was drastically disrupted and altered by the European attack that resulted in the capture and colonial enslavement of Africa and Africans. This attack by Europeans on Africa also resulted in the imposition of artificial borders that separate the dispersed African nation from our human and material resources and from a meaningful relationship among ourselves and with the peoples of the world. And this is continuing to read from Chairman Omali Jatela from uh, the theory of African internationalism. The chairman says, the material and human resources of Africa have gone to satisfy the requirements of life for Europeans at the expense of Africa and Africans. The process of Africans producing and reproducing life has not been primarily for Africa or Africans. It has been primarily for Europe and the white world at our expense, end quote. That is so profound to really think about, you know, that it is so eloquent what Chairman Omalia Chatella is, is writing there, that the motive force for life is to produce what you need to reproduce life, to, to continue to um, have children and, and, and a society that develops and, and, and builds and goes forward. And, and you, you work, you produce what you need to live so that, you can live so that your children can live. And yet African people just so brutally have had this taken away from them and forced to be in totally inhuman, vicious conditions imposed by the colonial slave masters on them that took away the ability even for women's wombs to produce children for themselves very um just it is so deep and this is the world that we live in this is the world that white people experience as a colonizer this is what it means yeah i i really agree with that chairwoman penny i don't think there's any more profound thing that we can contemplate but but that 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 life itself does not happen for African people. It happens for the system, for the benefit of white people. And I think that that example that you gave of African women giving birth and the children legally not belonging to them or to the fathers um, is is just such a, a deeply personal example of that fact of life itself not belonging to African people. It, it belongs to this enslaving system. Um, there's just not enough that we could say about that. And just all the labor and, and the point that has been made in some books that, that African people created so much wealth in order to survive and, and the genius and incredible energy that they had to use to, 
to be able to to pick the cotton in such a brilliant way so that they didn't get killed every day as they were nearly nearly killed in um, horrible beatings almost daily. They did not meet their quota. And just the, the ability to survive, to live, to, um, to be able to, you know, produce this, all of this wealth, all, all of, you know, this product that benefits white people, even today, even today, that has compounded so much and is in the social and generational wealth that we experience as white people today. And, you know, you saying that makes me think of like how in, in the World Tribunal on Reparations to African People that the African People's Socialist Party had back in 1982, the amount of money calculated that is owed for unpaid labor alone does not include the punitive damages for the suffering, right? But w- one of the things that I, if I'm not mistaken, in, in that book by uh, Ed Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told, right. it talks about tea for torture. It was an economic consideration in making sure that they extracted as much labor as possible from African people. So it's it's an economic factor as well as a horrific human factor, the suffering that African people went through. I, also, I, I would add in that um, on on that point, I remember a, uh, a conference of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement a few years ago in St. Louis and Chairwoman Penny uh, delivered a very, very powerful presentation called How Much Do We Owe? that um, went through and, and started to quantify and calculate, um, you know, everything, you know, just the vast, ultimately unquantifiable enormity of wealth extracted from African people, from African uh, labor, from the slave trade up to now, the prison system, the theft of African land from farmers and and also from the indigenous people. And um, and it was a really powerful presentation. And I remember uh, Chairman Amalia Shatella uh, commenting that, um, you know, that that it is ultimately immeasurable. I mean, it is it's important to show it. But he yeah. said, I remember the chairman po- posing the question, how do you put a price on white life? Because white life itself, the light, the ability for white people to experience life owes itself to this parasitic attachment and assault and sucking the blood from Africa and African people. And, you know, I, I just thought about that in, in light of this whole discussion about the breeding and, um, and, you know, and, and, and it goes, it's literally from, from, you know, birth and even till after death. I mean, there's a whole thing about the trade in, in cadavers of African people's bodies and using them as, for medical experiments and for other things like, like, you know, white people's control and parasitic exploitation of African, of African human beings, even after they've died. Um, it's just, you know, anyway, I, I, I totally unite also that with the point that it, it's part of the economy, you know, it's a parasitic economy. It's not just like some, some depraved uh, moral horror, although obviously it is, but it was like, normal and is normal like this like you said chairman penny this is the world we live in this is the the economy that we benefit from to this day yes and i think that we have to be clear that as the chairman said the entire world economy and the entire u.s economy Mm -hmm. capitalism itself was born this way so it's not just something that happened a long time ago but i didn't do it 
but we live off it. And I'm just reading the statistic that right now in wills <laughs> and, and different kinds of, of, you know, documents ready to pass down wealth to the next generation, there is $70 trillion of generational wealth that is going to be experienced by the next generation of white people. And, you know, so this is, this is the reality that, that the ability uh, on our part as the colonizers in the face of the colonized to, to have a house, to have property, to have assets, to have a savings account that is passed down from generation to generation is based on just some of the things that we're reading and talking about today. And so we want to be clear that, that New York, that Wall Street, that the North overall was just as dependent on the enslavement of African people as the South. And, and I think that's another myth that's out there that somehow slavery benefited the slave masters of the South or the Southern economy. But the fact is that the enslavement of African people created the wealth for the entire, entire United States along with the stolen land of the indigenous people, all of every single um, revenue stream and, you know, and, and economic establishment of white people and land and farms and all of that is based on, the, um, on, on this parasitic, this genocidal assault on African people and indigenous people. So, um, I also wanted to mention that African people who were bred in one part of, of the South or one part of the United States, that you, you hear the term that they were sold down the river. And of course, that's what sold down the river means, that they were sold to these big plantations in what was called the Deep South. And this refers to you know, the breeding of African people on the big rivers like Ohio River, which Louisville, Kentucky is on, or Mississippi River, um, to supply the growing demand for the massive plantations. So basically, Africans were sold down the river. But in reality, most enslaved Africans were not given the luxury of being transported on a boat. They were forced in forced marches in what is called a coffle, C-O-F-F-L-E. That is not a word that I was familiar with at all until, you know, I learned it through reading this history. And just to say that a coffle is a forced march of African people chained together at the waist and neck Many, you know, women nursing babies, there were old people, there were little children, it was all ages, and they had to march like that, chained together for hundreds of miles from, say, Virginia or Kentucky to Louisiana, and they were policed by white colonizers on horseback holding guns. Wow. And uh, you have an article that yes, a little bit more about that. Right. Um, we wanted to read from a 2015 Smithsonian article uh, by Edward Ball called Retracing Slavery's Trail of Tears. When Dolores McQuinn was growing up, her father told her a story about a search for the family's roots. 
He said his own father knew the name of the people who had enslaved their family in Virginia, knew where they lived in the same house and on the same land in Hanover County among the rumpled hills north of Richmond. My grandfather went to the folks who had owned our family and asked, do you have any documentation about our history during the slave days? We would like to see it if possible. The man at the door, who I have to assume was from the slaveholding side, said, sure, we'll give it to you. The man went into his house and came back out with some papers in his hands. Now, whether the papers were trivial or actual plantation records, who knows? But he stood in the door in front of my grandfather and lit a match to the papers. You want your history, he said? Here it is, watching the things burn. Take the ashes and get off my land. The intent was to keep that history buried, McQuinn says today. And I think something like that has happened over and again, symbolically. Not long ago, I, the author, was reading some old letters at the library of the University of North Carolina, doing a little unearthing of my own. Among the hundreds of hard-to-read and yellowing papers, I found one note dated April 16, 1834, from a man named James Franklin in Natchez, Mississippi, to the home office of his company in Virginia. He worked for a partnership of slave dealers called Franklin and Armfield, run by his uncle. We have about $10,000 to pay yet. Should you purchase a good lot for walking, I will bring them out by land this summer, Franklin had written. $10,000 was a considerable sum in 1834, the equivalent of nearly $300,000 today. A good lot for walking was a gang of enslaved men, women, and children, possibly numbering in the hundreds, who could tolerate three months afoot in the summer heat. Scholars of slavery are often familiar with the firm of Franklin and Armfield, which Isaac Franklin and John Armfield established in Alexandria, Virginia in 1828. Over the next decade, with Armfield based in Alexandria and Isaac Franklin in New Orleans, the two became the undisputed tycoons of the domestic slave trade with an economic impact that is hard to overstate. In 1832, for example, 5% of all the commercial credit available through the Second Bank of the United States had been extended to their firm. This letter from 1834 held riches, quote, I will bring them out by land, end quote, was for me the invaluable line. It referred to a forced march over land from the fields of Virginia to the slave auctions in Natchez and New Orleans. The letter was the first sign that I might that, that I might be able to trace the route of one of the Franklin and Armfield caravans. With that signal from Natchez, Armfield began vacuuming up people from the Virginia countryside. The partners employed stringers, headhunters who worked on commission, collecting enslaved people up and down the East Coast knocking on doors, asking tobacco and rice planters whether they would sell. Many slaveholders were inclined to, were inclined to do so, as their, planta- as their plantations made smaller fortunes than many princeling sons would have liked. Uhuru. Yeah, just to see that, that, I mean, just that incredible that these maybe hundreds of people in one coffle that was marching for three months with, you know, they had no shoes. They had no, barely any clothes on in the summer heat with children. And as we said, all ages, women with babies, pregnant women forced to, 
forced on these forced marches. This is never talked about in our history. This, this is not something that is common knowledge at all. And then to see, you know, this Franklin and Armfield, this, this incredible wealth that, that was made from, um, you know, from this. This is where the wealth of, yeah, Natchez, Mississippi, New Orleans, um, New York City, Wall Street, this is, this is where it comes from. This is just some of the history that was there. And we can see a little bit of the extent to which all white colonizers were connected to the enslavement of African people. And just, you know, when Chairman O'Malley says that this is the pedestal upon which all white people sit, this, this is so true. Everything from universities, law firms, hotels, transportation, shopping districts. And I've always noticed there's a market street in every town. And this is where the slave markets were, where the markets were, where they sold African human beings. And everything is built around the entire economy. The superstructure of the U.S. was built around this vicious colonization of African people that continues to, de- to today. And this is, this is colonialism. Colonialism is violence. And colonialism means there is a colonizer which is the white people and the colonized. Yes, reparations are owed. African people are owed everything. And I just, I just want to uh, read really quickly an example of the resistance of African women to um, this brutality, this vicious brutality of the, co- the colonial slave master. And this is a testimony that was recorded by an African woman, T.W. Cotton, was her name, and she had been born into enslavement, but after, you know, this was, she was 80 at the time of this interview, so this was probably in the, in the 1920s, and she lived in Arkansas, and she's talking about her, the slave master, the, the, the people, the men that owned her, was Dr. Polk and his son, and so it goes you know, it begins by saying, her quote begins by saying, Dr. Polk and his son, the one my mother beat up and left lying on the ground, were two mean men. When the slaves didn't pick enough cotton for them, they would take them down the field, tear off their clothes till they were naked, and beat them nearly to death. And she says, my mother was a breeder. Horrible. I mean, that's her mother had to have, had to produce children for the slave master. And while she was, her job was she had to weave. She worked at a loom. She had to take the cotton and and make it into fabric and cloth. And um, so she was, and that was outside. I mean, the loom was outside right next to the fields. And while she did that weaving, she had children fast. So she had to have babies while working. And one day, Tom Polk, the son of the slave master, hit my mother. And that was before she ran away. He hit her because she didn't pick up the required amount of cotton. When there was nothing to do at the loom, mother had to go into the field, you know. I forget how much cotton they had to pick. I don't know how many times he hit her. I was small. I heard someone say, they got Clarice down, down there. I went to see and they had her down. She was stout and they had to dig a hole in the ground to to put her belly in. I never did get over that. I'm an old woman, but Tom Polk better not come around here even now. 
I have heard women scream and holler, and I was sure glad when my mother beat up young Tom and got away. I don't have no use for neither of them, and I, and I still don't. Really powerful stance, you know. Wow. Um, yeah. So there was resistance in, in a myriad of ways from African women spitting in the food, they were in the kitchen, to um, taking a hat pin and, and sliding it into the back of the head of white babies that they were forced to take care of as their children were being stolen or, or had no care. And, um, you know, just all of the ways that African w women are known to have resisted fiercely um, this, this brutal, brutal colonial domination of African people. And of course, African men resisted valiantly as well. And we will talk more about African resistance to colonial enslavement next week, next time, our next session. You know, in, in light of these kinds of horrific stories that we, that we know are just the tip of the iceberg of what happened, it, it really brings it into clarification why uh, a struggle against racism is meaningless, right? As Chairman Amalia Chatella has pointed out, um, the, the, the whole economy and societal superstructure, as the chairman teaches us, are built off this reality. And every like, like, like we heard in a clip from Chairman Amalia Chatella last week, every, everything about the, the superstructure, all the ideas in this society flow from this horrific human and economic reality of uh, co colonial torture, colonial enslavement. And I, I think that when, when I, when I'm thinking of this idea of a struggle against racism right now and how empty it is, I'm, I'm thinking of like, there are certain kinds of capitalist economists who call uh, capitalism a self-correcting system, right? That we just have to improve it. We just have to tweak it just right. And any day now it's going to become something really wonderful for humanity. Um, it's, it's just, it's such a grotesque suggestion when, when you look at, at this, horrible reality that that it has always been um that th that we're going to re reform our way that cap the, the thing that did this to human beings that ripped these hands out of the process that distorted reality distorted the earth poisoned the earth is is going to fix it um it's it's a monstrous suggestion yes Obviously, this is not a struggle against racism. This is colonialism, just as vicious, just as at the same time lucrative for white people, wherever colonialism is, any place on the planet Earth, in Africa or Vietnam or in the Middle East. And that a struggle against racism is not going to change anything. The violence of colonialism is in the DNA of capitalism. It can't be reformed. So that's why we are white people under the leadership of the African revolution, which is absolutely strategically and ideologically and organizationally prepared to wage a worldwide revolution, defeating this capitalist system once and for all and, and ushering in, in true socialism 
in which there would be a world without the oppressors and the oppressed, that nobody is built and built a life on the pedestal at the expense of anybody else. So, you know, we just say reparations now. This is why we are members of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, Uhuru. Penny Hess, chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, and Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Thank you so much for joining us once again on Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, and helping us to discuss the harrowing reality of the second slave trade in African people. We'll see you next time on White Lies Shattered. You're listening to Reparations in Action. This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshitela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>